Welcome everybody to today's conversation around the curve from Brandywine Global. I'm Katie Klingensmith and I am joined by my colleague, Carol Lai, who's based in Singapore. She's a senior research analyst and a portfolio manager on many of our global fixed income strategies. It's great to have Carol here because there is so much conversation going on right now around the macro and the politics of the future of Asia. And Carol looks at the world, but certainly has a lot of depth in Asian countries. Carol, I'd love to just get us started. What's going on in China? I mean, just there's a lot of pessimism around the growth, real estate. What's the overall scenario? And is all of this pessimism warranted? What we have been seeing in China really is that um, if you remember China's growth after they opened up from COVID, you know, that didn't last too long. It only lasted two quarters into this year. And then, you know, the whole issues about housing came back again. And of course, you know, there was the uh, still, you know, kind of rocky US-China relations. So they all added up uh, and it resulted in pretty much weak growth for China. So um, I would say that, you know, if we look at the recent data that has been coming out, in fact, uh, growth has been bottoming out. Uh, the Chinese officials, the, the government is, is, is quite firm that they want growth to pick up from here. And so they have started to put in policies in place um, that will help growth going forward. Uh, so, uh, for example, one of the latest policies that they have come and potential policies that they are thinking of coming up with is what they call the, the PSL policy. Uh, and it is effectively, some would call it like a, a Chinese QE per se, uh, where they are going to start pumping money into the property sector, uh, perhaps more in terms of uh, renovating um, uh, certain uh, uh, shanty towns, uh, urban villages. So they did that program in 2015 and it worked pretty well. It really helped growth to pick up. Now, this time around is a little bit different. We don't expect them to put in as much uh, to, to be frank. Uh, and also, you know, uh, Shanty Towns have already been renovated. So they have to find new projects essentially to, to work on. But I think the main message is really that the Chinese government gets it. They want to stabilize growth. And from here, I think growth in China has bottomed. It will kind of pick up, not in a big way, to be frank, uh, but at least stabilize from here. Seems like part of the worry is the global environment. And well, I'm in San Francisco and there's been a lot of focus on the recent Biden Xi um, APEC meetings. Do, do you think that the trade tensions or the lack of dialogue between the US and China have had and might have a real impact on the near term economic outlook? Certainly, I, I think, you know, when you when we um, kind of speak to uh, people on, on the ground in China and also when you read, the, you know, kind of sentiments, the, 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 the businesses in China are very worried about what is going to happen globally, especially with, you know, the kind of relations that they are having with the U.S. And so businesses confidence is actually quite weak. In that in in that expect so anything that you know is going to help you know it push you know expectations or, or optimism in that direction is really helpful and so I think the the recent and what's going on today 
uh, with Biden and C uh, is really good because uh, they have decided that you know they're going to work on military communications, uh, work on doing some export controls, uh, you know, fentanyl uh, uh, exports as well. So uh, there's some give and takes at this summit. It's a very high level summit, and I think there's a lot of positive messages that are coming out of it. It's really going to be quite helpful for both countries and especially for China. It seems it's coming from a, a, a rather a low set of expectations <laughs> so that there's really the potential for improvement. Well, let's think about the rest of Asia. Historically, Brandywine Global has had a lot of orientation towards investment opportunities in Asia, but it doesn't seem to really be a focus of ours right now. Why not? Right. I would say um, emerging Asian countries this time around are still, you know, in, in relatively good shape. You, if you think about growth and inflation, well, the, the issue with Asian countries is just that they never quite hiked uh, monetary policy as much as other countries, for example, in Latin America. And you remember our brandy wine process, we and, and our uh, environment or, or um, sphere of investment, we look across a lot of different emerging markets. And when we compare them, uh, EM Asia valuations are just much tighter as compared to um, Latin America, even for CMEA. Uh, nominal yields are also way below the US. So the carry story is not really there. I mean, carry meaning nominal yield story is not really there for Asia. And so uh, we prefer to be more in Latin America where we can, we are compensated more for the risk rather than be in Asia uh, where yields are, are, are much lower. So, so that's a, a big answer. The valuations are not extremely attractive and that the carry is not as high as some other regions. But in spite of that, are there certain growth stories or certain individual countries that you're really watching? Yeah, I think I think there are there are potentially just two or three here. Uh, the the first one is really India because uh, India's uh, bond market, you know, has been very, you know, in terms of its exposure to foreigners, has been very small. So recently, if you know, if, if anyone has been following the uh, fixed income markets quite closely in Asia, you know, there India uh, will be included in the GDIEM indices. So going forward, there's going to be much more uh, uh, flows that's going to come into India. It works well for India. Uh, India's fundamental story is, is quite good as well. Uh, you know, if you look at a couple of the metrics, for example, you know, their reserves to exports, their reserves are still at a very high level. So I would say that India is a pretty good story and that's potentially where money can flow into uh, for fixed income. Now, the other uh, story that we are, uh, you know, putting a lot of focus as well on is on, on Japan, obviously, um, because, you know, the, the BOJ is likely to uh, move ahead to normalize their rates a bit more quicker than thought. So because of the sustained inflation and weak exchange rates, you know, and we have talked about this a couple of times, but uh, we are very focused and uh, on, on, you know, uh, looking at Japanese yields and shorting, in fact, more Japanese yields if we can from here. I definitely want to get back to the currency conversation. But before we do that, talk to me about what the big macro trends are. I mean, coming out of COVID or very different paths for different countries, Tourism from China plays a big role for the, the growth uh, of many of the different countries in Southeast Asia. What are the big trends that you're watching? 
Now, um, I, I think, yeah, coming back to, you know, after post-COVID, tourism, like you said, is one of them. Now, Asian countries in general have opened up much later as compared to the Western world. Uh, in addition, China only opened up last year. So we're still seeing a fair bit of demand for travel in, in this part of the, of the world. Uh, we we continue, continue to track the number of tourists from China to other Asian countries. And it's still quite, you know, it's still ranging somewhere around the levels of 40% for some countries to 80% for other countries as compared to pre-pandemic. So which means there's a scope for a, a greater revival in tourism. Now, we don't expect that to, you know, suddenly jump much higher because in China, there are just still, you know, restrictions over visas. It's harder to get visas. You know, flight numbers are still slowly, steadily increasing. So that number will, will start to increase and, and uh, it, it's not a, a one-off jump that's going to happen. Now, so that's the first theme of tourism. Uh, the, the second theme that we are watching very closely is to do with offshore and increasing FBIs because um, the recent trends that we are seeing is that FDIs into China is coming up. It, it's it's actually getting, you know, in, in a bit of a, uh, a, I wouldn't say a bad shape, but, you know, flows have not been going as into China as much. So a lot of these FDI flows, in fact, have been coming into Asia. Uh, companies are rethinking their supply chains they are keeping operations for China within China while trying to move some of the operations that are more global or Asia in nature out of China. So we are seeing rising FDIs into Malaysia, Vietnam, uh, Thailand, India, uh, Indonesia. So these are some of the countries that are going to benefit and are benefiting from that rejig in supply chains. Now, that said, uh, these countries are still small, you know, in size when you compare them to China and therefore they, they simply cannot replace China operations. So I, I would feel that there, there is going there is this rejig in, in supply chain operations, but not a full cut of, off or cut away from Chinese operations totally. So it, it's like, you know, juggling between it, it, two, two different worlds altogether, China and something that's out of China. Carol, you, you mentioned that we see opportunities in the Japanese yen. Uh, can you give us an update on what's going on with the Japanese economy and monetary policy? Right. So with Japan, it's increasingly, you know, uh, interest, getting even more interesting. I, I think, you know, there are various signs which are showing us the way that um, the, the BOJ is moving much quicker towards uh, normalizing out of uh, negative interest rates. Uh, you know, I, I think most analysts uh, have been putting, you know, removing negative interest rates to like, you know, more towards the end of next year. Uh, and in fact, some are saying, you know, two zero to five. But if you read their recent uh, monetary policy meeting minutes, uh, it's getting very much evidently clear uh, that a lot, you know, I think half of the of the board members are getting more comfortable with inflation. Uh, they see the side effects of such easy monetary policy. 
such big effects of negative interest rate uh, uh, negative interest rates. So uh, what what they are starting to swing towards is actually to start removing uh, not just you know the the entire removal of of, uh, of YCC or yield curve control, but also to start you know thinking about uh, removing negative interest rate policy. So and if that does happen, that is definitely I would say the biggest regime regime change because you know you basically had. You know, Japan has been in that negative interest rate policy since uh, I think it was 2015. So that's like a cool seven years, you know, that they, they have been embedded there. Uh, and, you know, once that moves, uh, it's not just um, the, the interest rate that will move, but also the currency. It, it will really start to move a couple of things. And I, I really see the signs that they are going to start quickening that pace going forward. I mean, if you look at the yen and where it is now, it's that 150. 151 right and it's it, it's just generating a lot of important inflation for them so they eventually will have to do something and i think we're getting you know closer and closer uh to 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 something happening on that front just to follow up, Carol, and we've talked about how there is a lot of economic momentum in Japan. Uh, you just noted that the Bank of Japan is moving more quickly than even we anticipated. Why is the yen weaker and weaker? The main thing is really to do with the U.S. side, you know, where where our rates have have just been been you know at at a higher level compared to Japan, uh, and you know it, it it's just not helping the yen. But like I said, you know, going forward, uh, what is really needed to move the yen are just two things, right? Um, basically, it will just be U.S. policy, interest rate policy, and if Japan starts to really move out of their negative interest rate policy and thereby reinforcing some expectations of higher uh, interest rates going forward in Japan. Um, and of course, if we continue to see growth picking up uh, more strongly for Japan, that will really help uh, the yen going forward. Unfortunately, you know, this year has not been a year for the yen. Perhaps it might be next year. You highlighted that there could be opportunities in the currency front in Japan, uh, but that generally speaking, Asian bonds are, are less attractive right now. What are the other big trends driving Asian currency markets? Basically, just, you know, currencies are just really about interest rate differentials and, and growth differentials. So interest rate differentials this year have just been more about the U.S. And, and the latest, uh, you know, CPI print out of the U.S., obviously, in addition to higher unemployment rate, simply, you know, it's starting to point us in the direction that Fed hikes are at peak. So uh, there is a case for a weaker U.S. dollar going forward from here. Uh, on growth differentials, now China's growth has been, you know, as we talked about earlier, it has been disappointing over the past two quarters, but with the fiscal stimulus and potential inventory restocking, um, there is the evidence that points to some stabilization from here. So that helps to really put a bottom into some of the, the weak, uh, uh, in, into weak uh, rest of the world currencies. Now, within Asia, because, you know, currencies are, again, lower yielding, we are much more focused on a selected few currencies. So um, Australian dollar is one which, you know, has, you know, typically benefits from China's stabilization. Uh, it has also decoupled from yield differentials. So that's one of the currencies that we find attractive. Uh, the other two currencies that are attractive and really speaks to, you know, what we are talking about in terms of the, the, the macro uh, theme 
of the uh, rejigging of FDIs is really um, the Malaysian dollar and, and Korean won. These are currencies that have value. It, it benefits from China stabilization. Uh, medium term, there's a reshoring of FDIs that help. And in the near term as well, there's a bottoming out in the Asian electronic cycle. So that really helps those currencies. All right. So it sounds like there's some select opportunities and both on the bond side, but maybe even more um, upcoming in the currency side. What do you think are the big risks for the region? Well, really just two risks. I, I think that the two risks ahead for China, uh, the, the first is that if we get a rerun again with U.S. exceptionalism, where, you know, U.S. growth is stellar, it continues to pound ahead. Now, this is going to cause a problem for lower yielding countries and currencies in Asia, because um, if, if you rewind back to about two months, three months ago, uh, a lot of these Asian currencies or, or sorry, countries, um, they were forced to either uh, hold on to their rates or even hike rates, for example, in Indonesia and Philippines. Uh, so if we get exceptional growth again uh, because of that yield differential, so, so these countries will, you know, currencies will not perform as well. Now, the second biggest risk uh, is to do with China's growth. Uh, if it doesn't stabilize and in, in fact it continues to weaken, that will definitely put a dent to uh, global growth and global commodities. Uh, and it and you know, just being China, China's neighbors, it's just not going to help our growth uh, fundamentals as well. So th those are the two biggest risks. Well, it still seems that a lot of the individual stories rest on what happens in China and in the U.S. Uh, so alas, we covered a lot of ground. I really appreciate that overview of much of what's going on um, in Asia. Thank you, Carol Lai, for being part of the Around the Curve conversation for Anyone Global. Thank you.